0: Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go.
1: A mentor of mine told me, and he was like, look, Greg, you've worked at all these places, your resume is amazing, blah, 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 blah. Just do me a favor and make sure that when you do have the opportunity to open up your own restaurant, that your mother is gonna be comfortable in your own restaurant. And I totally blew him off.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, The Pineapple Post is here to help sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. Some of the most inspiring things to come out of the pandemic have been the unexpected acts of heroism we've seen within our industry. Even in the worst of times, we still find ourselves of service to others. Few illustrate that ideal more than chef Greg Backstrom. Greg has converted one restaurant into a community food bank and another into a platform for aspiring chefs of color. In this episode, we dive into the experiences and choices that have made him a world-class chef and a community leader.
1: I made a conscious decision to leave, to stop working for other people. It was like, okay, you can cook, Greg. That's not up for debate anymore. You can run a restaurant, you can cook, but you're not going to network working 80 hours a week working for someone else. So you have to just take this scary leap and give it a shot. And it was five years of swing and a miss. I have a lot of places on my resume, but they're not a whole bunch of three-month stints. That's four years, two years. But when I got to the point where I had to, trying to be able to be available to, quite frankly, wealthy people to be able to do a party for them or something... Thinking that that was how I was supposed to make my next steps, I would commit to other fine dining restaurants or friends that own their own fine dining restaurants. Okay, I'll give you six months or I'll give you three months. But like, this is the thing you're going to pay me maybe a little bit better than your other cooks, or some got away with paying me very little, but it was like at least steady income while I could leave. And if I needed to do a dinner for someone, I got to do the dinner for someone kind of a thing. There was a lot of that while networking, talking to restaurateurs, being really naive, trying to ignore the advice of one of my mentors, the mother scenario, thinking like, I need $4 million. You know, like most of the restaurants that didn't come about or the investors I offended, it was, I want a couple million dollars. I want no accountability. I don't want to answer to anyone, <laughs> take it or leave it. And it was just like, okay. So eventually after a couple of years of that, you realize you need a lawyer to tell you what you're supposed to be saying. Okay, so now you have a real job for years, but you need to give some guy a couple of grand to tell you, cool your jets a little bit. And as those things very naturally progressed, I was still in the game. That's how I met the Seinfelds. I worked for the Seinfelds for two years. They were great to me, allowed me to still have enough of a schedule to where I could entertain potential partners and stuff. And move to Norway for a while and help my friend open up his restaurant. And you're picking up more stuff. Those stages. Like I still stodged. I just stodged at Japan a couple of years ago in Yardbird in Hong Kong. I have my own restaurants. But now that you've been doing this for so long, you can get a lot out of seeing an operation in a day. Whereas Mm -hmm. before you might have to spend months to start to get a grasp of things. So just compiling more information of how other people are running their restaurants, not so much looking when I'm helping out these friends, I don't care about how they're making a smooth puree. I am seeing how they're interacting with their partners and that kind of stuff so like along the way you realize that you needed the lawyer and you meet a publicist and so now you're not just stuck behind the, who is this kind of guy just hanging around helping you're meeting some of the other people so after four or five years of that some might say like i didn't want to find any restaurant in part i could not get someone to give me a fine dining restaurant once i had everything once i had a friend that was a photographer and a publicist and i had the partners and i had all this stuff once I just said, okay, look, you've worked in all these places around the world. What is it that you need? Just give me any kitchen. I don't care what the kitchen is. Just give me the opportunity. That's where we're going to start at now, not $2 million restaurant. Give me an opportunity. I like to eat at the bar or counter, have some type of bar or counter seating, and have some type of outside space so that way I can have some minuscule agricultural component to it. Like It was weeks later that I got my restaurant. After I just said, give me the fucking bar. I don't want a tiny bullshit dining room. I want a manageable one, a bar and outside space. No joke. It was like six weeks. I did a tasting for the guy, my partner now. And like a couple of days later, my dad and I were driving out from Chicago to build a restaurant in 99 days.
0: And that was Olmstead. That's Olmstead. Yeah. 50 seats, right?
1: It's a tiny little three man kitchen with 50 seats. 10 of those seats are at the bar. And four are at the chef's counter. And we have another 15 or so outside. It's intentionally built so that way you don't even ask to have dinner out there. It's meant to have cocktails or dessert. So that way we can have some type of an experience. You know, I hate the word experience when it comes to restaurants. Like, it's just a restaurant. Okay, like we're not that serious. But build your own adventure. Do you want to go out to the garden and start with cocktails, then move in, then go back out for s'mores? Okay, great. You're going to be here for four hours. Now we're competing with other fine dining restaurants for time and experience and whatnot. You could also just sit at the bar and have two dishes and read a book and leave if you want to. We're not holding anyone captive.
0: How well conceptualized was the concept before the day you opened and how much did it evolve over the first few months?
1: I don't know if it's because of the ADD or the dyslexia or whatever. But when someone says, like, what do you want your dream restaurant to be? Like, there has to be a box somewhere that I have to fill in. It has to be, Greg, if I were to give you a restaurant in Brooklyn, in this neighborhood, what would you want to do? Okay, so then right. I'll do that. Like, I don't want to be the chef that ignores its neighborhood. And I don't mean that to be like, I bow down to my neighborhood, my neighborhood, my neighborhood. Yes, I live here. Like, I should still be able to create my own identity. I just mean, like, everything needs to be a factor. Everything. Everything you can move me from this box to a different box in Manhattan or move it to Chicago. Like there's nothing genuine about that restaurant.
0: So when you conceptualized, you did take the neighborhood into account. Yeah, literally. What I'm trying to distill out is how well formed was the concept? Or was it like, this is where we're going to start with. We'll get feedback from the clientele and then we'll work it out from there.
1: It was everyone on Eater, two fancy, expensive tasting menu restaurants is the resume. Now they're doing a, affordable one. I didn't want to be in that group. So it was, get rid of my resume. It was, you could say he worked at Alenia back in the day and spent some time with Dan Barber to get like a sense of the stuff. But it was not like he also worked in Spain where he did El Bulli and Mugaritz and Arzac and went to Noma. My resume to me is obnoxious and intimidating to the wrong consumer. I don't dine in those types of restaurants. Not that there's anything wrong with them. I just don't. Like, unless it's my friend like i'm not the person that needs to bucket list every restaurant and so i didn't want to alienate the neighborhood others will argue my ego is huge but i don't <laughs> i did not believe that i would just have some international sensation or something i need people to walk off the street and come into the restaurant that's who i needed to market to so trying to have a very nice clean restaurant where nothing was the hard line was nothing could be more than 24 dollars i didn't even do any math as to why that should be I didn't see any other restaurant on my street that had something that the most was 28 I was like, okay, then let's just not even go near that. Let's just say it's 24 And until the pandemic, there was no plan. And I'm sure it's not going to be $24 now, but there was no plan to raise it until we were forced to.
0: Six months then, in, were you guys profitable?
1: What does profitable
0: mean? I mean, that's a great question, right? How did you guys chart financial success? Did you feel like six months in, you were stable, you were doing well? you got tons of accolades, but accolades don't really pay the bills. It was obviously an excellent restaurant. Was it an excellent business Uh, as well?
1: No. Even though 2020 was the year of pivots, it had been that prior to 2020. I mean, when we first opened, I wanted to, in fine dining restaurants, even though it was illegal, it was like a lot of shift pay or sort of salaried employees, right? So kind of coming from that, but not wanting to do that in a negative way, we ensured like okay, we're only going to go with three cooks and they're going to have to work a lot because it's an opening. At least at least give them 50 grand a year, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. That didn't work because as soon as one person got sick, then the whole thing fell apart. Or quite frankly, there was a period where they were making that and it was, we would prefer to make less and have better quality of life. We were successful in that we were busy. In fact, on a Monday, we would be slow because people, or certain days of the week, we would be slow because people would just think that we were so busy because everything Right we're not a large restaurant, right? We're 50 seats. That means we're doing less than 100 people a day in New York City. So we're in New York City where there's millions of people, millions of consumers. We only need to do 100 to be considered a financially successful restaurant. But we have to hit that 100 every single day. We do not. And so it's constantly adapting. Me too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went through the same thing. When we got inclusion in the Michelin Guide, it was so exciting. We weren't making any money. We weren't losing a lot of money. We weren't really making a lot of money.
1: The joke was we were the most profitable when we were a six day a week restaurant, not seven. Didn't do lunch. And I could, so when one of my partners brings it up, jokingly, that was when we were making hand over fist, four months. Everyone was working six days a week. I was working seven days a week. And everyone was miserable. And so, like, with the money, with so, the money, like, was so you great. can't factor that in. You can't, like, that doesn't, <laughs> right. so, like, it annoys the shit out of me. Like, there's not a, well, maybe we can do this again kind of a thing.
0: Literally, I hit the same life experience. And then it looks like you and I made the same choice. I was like, we should open another one.
1: Well, so what happened there was we have Olmstead. we added lunch, and we're doing good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a beat down because it's 10 services, because we do dinner seven days a week and lunch Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. <sighs> So it's great because we are still able to at least offer consecutive days off for all of our cooks. They're all getting, I think, twelve hours overtime or fifteen hours of overtime pay, all of them. And like it's working, but we only raised like three hundred grand to open on homestead. So right when we were about to cut the check and be caught up, the neighbor went out of business. It was a dry cleaner. She had been in the neighborhood for a very long time. And so we took the space. It was like, when else are we gonna get this opportunity to just take the space next to us? So we take it. And then we get an SBA loan for almost a million bucks. We expand, build a better kitchen. We build a private dining room. We expand the garden. And then we build a second restaurant thinking like, okay, so now it could be stable. Now we'll have this private dining room that now that will fix sort of everything. And right now it's a grocery store for the restaurant because of uh, COVID.
0: Let's dig into COVID. I think that your reaction to the pandemic was really interesting because so many of us, myself included, we just hunkered down. I just closed the restaurant. I didn't know how best to proceed. And so I figured what was best for me, what was best for the longevity of the business was to just shut it down, hold on all the cash we had and just see what happens next. That's not the position you took. Do you want to talk about that?
1: So when we were all forced to close... The weeks leading up to it, like everyone else, we were starting to adapt. We could feel some cover coming. Covers are dropping. Okay, let's convert to the one restaurant into delivery only. And then let's do the one. Let's have like $45 prefixes. Literally promote it as get in and get out. And before we could even implement this stuff, we were shut down. We waited until we had more information. But there was no notion of saving everyone's job. There's no revenue. There's no job. So we had to lay everybody off. I am not well-versed in the minutia of the PPP loan or, and just sort of legislation, as much as I would love to be able to get some legislation passed for bottle bills and stuff like that passed. It's just not my strength and what I can do, you know, I can create. And I saw my friend Eduardo Jordan posting that he was partnering with the Lead initiative and flipping his restaurant days into the pandemic into a place for restaurant workers to get food. I'm like, okay, I am of the mind if someone else can do it and it's making sense, then that means I can do it and I can also make it make sense. Mm-hmm. He's not just like, I know Eduardo. He's not just like opening up a store because he's wealthy. He's a fucking hustler. So I called him. Within 72 hours, we were like open up as a food bank. Mm-hmm. It was that quick. I remember before that call, I literally not knowing anything about COVID. I went into the restaurant, held my breath and tied a scarf around my Not knowing if I was breathing in COVID or something Mm -hmm. and like shoving everything into freezers. Just like, we can't just donate all of this yet. We're going to need shit to reopen. We're fucking broke and we're going to need that money for payroll. And then about two weeks later, it was like pulling it slowly out because it was just like eating up space, trying to run the food bank. And so even the food bank in itself evolved. It was supposed to just be, I wanted it to be a constant. The restaurant was open seven days a week. I wanted us to be open seven days a week. I wanted our hours to always be the same, never change. So we started with that. It was seven days a week. It was groceries plus a cooked meal. And then we also had like tampons and stuff like that. And we just kind of kept pushing for more and more donations. Then we were kind of able to get little funding through little programs to kind of give us a little shot every once in a while, because there was this wave of like everyone donated. Then it was like, oh, shit. Maybe that was premature. Maybe we're also like meat companies and Cisco. And like, oh, fuck. This is not an eight-week problem. So then everyone stopped donating. We needed money. But then we started to try to raise money to give to our vendors to get ourselves out of debt to get the thing working again so that they would at least just kind of like, okay, we'll figure it out later sort of a thing. Like the whole thing was so awful. So it- eventually that kind of morphed more into preparing meals and then delivering them because that was sort of how World Central Kitchen operated that was how their funding worked you make a meal and you bring it to someone so donations kind of kept going away and we had to kind of pare back the hours and so now we even at this point world central kitchen is gone and we still do stuff with rethink i am not a saint all these programs they're funding very very little money but they're funding so that way i could bring back a cook or two and then a front of the house employee and then a dishwasher and then another front of the house employee and we're crawling our way out of this into like now we're operating a grocery store on the side, because okay, it was a very real problem. Give me more meals. I'll keep fucking cooking for as many people in need as. But that only brings back cooks' jobs. I don't need anybody in the front of the house for that. So, uh, first answer was like, okay, front of the house employees now can be considered. Our business is two store Like I said, we took the place to the right of us, so we get donated bread every day. But yet, we're also making our own bread. We're putting out free baguettes on the left side of the door and on the right door. It's seven dollar baguettes because that's what we need to charge to be able to make a profit to keep the employees. So it's like literally free and seven dollar baguettes. And honestly, like there would be days where like someone had been coming since day one. It was a restaurant worker that's still out of work. A little bit of both, you know. <laughs> I have this moment of sitting on the bench out front, looking at the two baguettes, and it was like a very strange moment.
0: You bring up a great point, which is that it's not about being a saint. But the reason I wanted to talk to you and the reason I think your story is so compelling is because if nothing else, you've tried. You've made like every effort to help where you can. And I think that the most exceptional stories out there are people that were exceptional in one facet of their life and took those values and that exceptionalism and applied it to other aspects of their life. You couldn't cook for the community. You created a food bank. You weren't able to contribute to the industry in one way through mentorship or through any kind of contribution in that way. So you started the Black Entrepreneurial Series, which I think is a great segue and I think was an amazing initiative. Talk to me about that. What was the idea behind it?
1: So like I said, we were slowly adding employees and it's this kind of mixed bag of not having enough jobs for everyone that was on our team before, but also some had just left the state and others just rightfully so not comfortable coming back to work. But for me, it was there was sort of this clock like it was the end of July when everyone was going to get kicked off of the 600 bucks. To me, it was like we had to have enough shit going to justify having people by then because then they are fucked and there's nothing I can do. I can keep reposting, donate to the employee fund thing, but that's going to trickle out pretty quick. So the marches in Brooklyn, they would gather right at Grand Army Plaza. We're only two blocks from Grand Army Plaza. So a lot of times they were going from Grand Army Plaza to a number of places, but a lot of times Barclay Center. So they would either go through straight down Flatbush or they would go down Vanderbilt, which is what we're on. And honestly, there was one day, it was like pouring rain, but it was that summer rain where like, there's no clouds in the sky, but it's pouring rain. There were like men and women screaming on the top of cars, marching down the street. It was very emotional. I'm looking across the street the whole staff stops what they're doing. And we're just watching it go by. We buy water bottles at the grocery store. We start passing out water bottles. And I see my closed restaurant across the street still. like We hadn't gotten to it yet. It was hard enough getting fucking Olmstead going. And it was like, again, I don't know how to get something passed. I don't know what to speak to. I can't articulate someone else's experience into a powerful message that gets noticed. Like I don't have that in me. I'm not that person. But I again, I have a restaurant. I can convince my partners and the team that this is what we should do. And the landlord, I can make it so that way, okay, we're not making money this year. We're adding another year onto our debt from the bank. I'll figure it out later. Let's do this. Can't hurt. We're already not making money. So let's turn the lights on and give it to black entrepreneurs that could do something with it. For me, it was about Again, I don't know what someone else needs to get their own business off the ground. I don't know. I barely can get my own shit together. But what I know is what got my restaurant open. And that was, I knew a publicist. I had professional photos by a photographer that does get published in the New York Times sometimes. I had two articles written about a pop-up I did. I blah, 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 right? I had those things. Network. So I just made that network happen for those people, including putting them in contact with the same attorney that I first reached out to. Again, I didn't make anyone's career, but I hope it helped.
0: Do you plan on doing it again in 2021?
1: It all depends. My investors are not wealthy. They deserve their money back. They have not gotten their money back from almost five years ago. Not to mention, I've taken out $800,000 in SBA loan. So like, I do have a duty to pay back at a minimum, right? The people that supported me and this notion. I don't know how many times I hear these fuck investors and stuff like that. I'm very cautious with this. How would you tell other people to do it this way? I'm a single guy. I don't give a fuck how much money I make. And I'll move back to Chicago if that's what it takes. And I'll shut it down or I'll get a roommate or whatever. I I don't have a wife and kids. But if I did or if my parents were sick, I'm sure my choices would have been different. I can't just say, okay, everyone, we're going to postpone paying our bills for a year on a restaurant that we have a 10-year lease. So it's not like I'm getting an extra year to make that money off. I'm just fucking myself, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if someone will actually sponsor, we had the uh, San Pellegrino, like they were great. They gave some money that really helped with the rent, but I don't know. Someone has to make it work. I will in a heartbeat. Someone wants to sign a lease somewhere and we'll all go in on it and we'll create a program where there's a rotating chef. Fucking count me in. I'll scrape whatever wealthy people I can and we'll make it a thing. I hope I've made some friends out of it and I hope there's a way to do it again in some fashion. Maybe it's just as simple as doing it on the days that Mizanyaki is closed and it's not as glamorous because it's not on a Saturday or something, but it's on a Monday and Tuesday and you still get to get your name out there or something. But the idea was to like, I don't know, maybe it was false sense, but like, you're the chef, do whatever you want. I don't need to see your menu. You didn't need to run shit by anyone. Like it was just, it's yours. These are the people here that will help you. It's going to be on these platforms for delivery. If you want, you don't want, okay, whatever. And you want a batch of cocktail, I got a bartender for you. We were gonna partner with James Beard, and I think that they kind of have their hands full this year, as a lot of people do. We're not a pasta restaurant. We don't have great margins, so we're not rich.
0: You're still cobbling together enough money to experiment, which is super exciting. Trading Post was, I think, the latest innovation, right?
1: Yeah, so the Trading Post, again, it's about justifying things. Our pastry chef is also a friend of mine. He's an expensive person. Obviously, everything is relative and tweaked a little bit in uh, COVID times. But how do I justify having an expensive, fancy pastry chef in the middle of a pandemic when I'm running a food bank? You can't. So, okay, Alex, we're opening up a bakery. Do whatever the hell you want to do. And then I'll fill it in with local florists. And we'll make our riettes and all that kind of stuff, too. And we'll get some other partners. And so I start everything. Even some of the black entrepreneurs sell their products out of the trading post, even to this day. So it's just like kind of this cool one-off bakery grocery store that justifies having Alex around, which I don't know if I'm responsible for keeping another human being employed, but I try where I can.
0: Do you think that retail model is going to stick? Is that something you think you'll move forward with? Do you like I it? Like,
1: I do. In the way that we're having it, he's operating a bakery out of kitchen that was not meant for a bakery. Right. So it gets a little uncomfortable at times. <laughs> But I've always wanted, even if it's not another money pit, but I've always wanted to help Alex and see Alex in his own space. And if there's a universe where we can move him into a place where he has the right equipment, that would be really cool. And it would be, we could do it in a way where we're not charging a ton of money, where it's like a lot of those types of stores get pretty expensive. I would like to see like that, like to really, again, just be another thing that is part of the neighborhood. I would like Olmstead to be the Gramercy Tavern of Brooklyn. We're not that big, but have the PDR become a dining room, fine dining, and the other side be a little bit more casual and cross the street is the bakery, and then maybe make the French mezunyaki concept, maybe make it a little bit less exactly what I would want to eat and maybe a little bit more food-porny, casual, you know, and just like have it be that it's just shit people want. That's the beauty in all this, right? Having these businesses be super selfish and being what you want them to be it's i just kept taking people's gardens behind olmstead like that's how we survived 2020 is because very naively as a idiot i just kept leasing everyone's backyard and we have a huge backyard and so we didn't drop any covers in the pandemic now we spent 50 grand on heaters and structures and crap but it's still what i want it to be it's Mm -hmm. still a cute little restaurant by guest perception even though they're connected in the basement, there's this big kitchen now and all this stuff. It's a cute, intimate restaurant with a nice big garden. If I can expand on that with the little grocery store thing and French food that's really heavy. Oh, but it's in small portions, so you don't feel gross. So you're like, you're giving them an experience without them really knowing that everyone wins in those scenarios, I feel
0: like. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, i like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to offer?
1: Gift cards are available on the Olmstead website. (laughs) Hang in there. We've all had a pretty rough year, myself included, with a lot of personal stuff. But hopefully good intentions create good outcomes.
0: That's Chef Greg Backstrom. For more on the chef and his projects, go to OlmsteadNYC.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our other content or read our daily publication, go to fullconf.media. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.